Greetings, scholars, and welcome to Following the Gong, a podcast of the Shire Honors College at Penn State. Following the Gong takes you inside conversations with our scholar alumni to hear their story so you can gain career and life advice and expand your professional network. You can hear the true breadth of how scholar alumni have gone on to shape the world after they ran the gong and graduated with honors and learn from their experiences so you can use their insights in your own journey. This show is proudly sponsored by the Scholar Alumni Society, a constituent group of the Penn State Alumni Association. I'm your host, Sean Goheen, class of 2011 and college staff member. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. Lou D'Ambrosio, class of 1986, is a partner at Goldman Sachs, having previously served as a strategic senior advisor to the company. Lou has also been the CEO of Fortune 500 companies and a senior executive across multiple industries. Lou served as executive chairman of Census, a clean technology company, CEO of Sears Holdings, comprised of Sears, Kmart, and Land's End, and CEO of Avaya Inc., a global telecommunications company, after 16 years at IBM. He earned his Bachelor of Science in Management with honors from Penn State Smeal College of Business in 1986, and his MBA from Harvard Business School in 1992. Lou joined Following the Gone while he was on campus to receive the Penn State Distinguished Alumni Award. Lou shares his story coming to Penn State as a first-generation student from South Philadelphia to the C-suite and his advice for students to succeed regardless of major. He further shares his insights from a robust career as a senior executive leading massive organizations through events like sales and acquisitions, changes in technology, and personal and health challenges. Lou's business insights and perspectives on what really matter in life make this episode helpful for for any scholar or scholar alum at any stage in their journey and career. Lou's sought-after opinions are typically found in national publications and at venues like the World Economic Forum, and here they are focused specifically on helping Trier scholars to make the most of their scholar experience. His full bio and a detailed breakdown of the topics discussed are available in the show notes on your podcast app. With that, let's get into our conversation with Lou D'Ambrosio following the gong. Joining me here today on Following the Gong is distinguished alum Lou D'Ambrosio. Lou, thank you so much for speaking with me today in person, no less, here at University Park. Thrilled to be here. It's um, such great memory, so always love coming back. Thank you. Well, we're glad to have you here. We're recording on Distinguished Alumni Award weekend, so glad that you're able to join us back here in State College. So, Lou, I always like to start by asking how you first came to Penn State and eventually what was then the University Scholars Program. Yeah, look, I wish I, I wish I could say it was a very kind of thought out, comprehensive, evaluative process. But it was pretty much it was pretty uh, straightforward, actually. You know, I grew up in a blue collar row home in South Philadelphia, and on Saturdays it was all about Penn State football. And if you got out of the neighborhood, that's where you went. You went to Penn State, and it was an extraordinary experience. And then, as you say, uh, the Schreyer Honors College was not established yet. But there was the beginning of the University Scholars Program. And it was very alluring to me because it, it spoke about the ability to, you know, gain that intimate academic education, to be intellectually challenged, to be in small, you know, classroom environments, seminar-like environments with grad students, and yet also have the vastness, the beauty, the wonders of Penn State. And so that 
kind of potent blend of attributes was quite appealing to me. That's great. And I'm sure a lot of our students listening can relate to, you know, Saturday's Penn State football and then Sunday's either go birds or go stillers. So I'm sure that that is pretty relatable for yeah, a, it's a definitely lot go of birds. Let's oh, be yes. Clear. Yes. And Just that's to be clear. same in my household, too. Yeah, yeah. So go birds. <laughs> uh, and if you've listened to previous episodes, you know, we interviewed Stefan Wisniewski, who won a Super Bowl with the Eagles. So go back and check that one out. Now, I'd love if you could give some insights on your experiences uh, early on in the scholars program, particularly what it was like being a first generation college student. Yeah, you know, it was interesting because Penn State provided a widened lens for me to see the world. And yet at the same time, it also provided a, a bit of a mirror to see myself. And that journey into college, into the world, it just set the foundation for me. You know, it taught me to know myself, to know how I think. It connected me with lifelong friends. And when you're one of the few people from the neighborhood, you know, so to speak, that goes to college, you do feel somewhat of a pressure to kind of, you know, do the right thing, you know, because you're doing it for far more than just yourself, um, for your family, for your friends, for people who may not have had opportunities that you have had. So it was, it was exhilarating, you know, being a first-gen college student and so forth. It also keeps you on your toes. You know, you have a certain kind of vigor and resiliency and, you know, arguably a bit of a chip on your shoulder. And, you know, I think parlayed in the right way, it could definitely serve to your advantage. Absolutely. And one of those things uh, that you put that attitude towards was, you know, something that is a unifying feature of the scholar experience from day one, and that's the honors thesis. So, Lou, can you tell us about what you described in advance was a bit of a, a rather unique thesis experience? Yeah, it was, a, it was an extraordinary experience. It was the first time that um, the scholars program ever had a joint thesis with people from two different colleges. So it was myself in collaboration with Joe Kernan, who was in liberal arts. And the thesis, you know, truly left an indelible impression, you know, on me. I remember, you know, our thesis advisor, Lori Perman. And our thesis, the title of our thesis was, it's funny, and I, I don't remember what I had for breakfast. I remember, you know, my thesis title. The thesis title was, What's So New About the New Breed? A Study of the Alleged Changes in American Workers' Values. And in that thesis, we actually challenged what had been the current writing at the time, that people's values and work were changing and that white-collar workers wanted something different than blue-collar workers. You know, and inspired by my father's life as a blue-collar worker and watching the hours he put in and knowing what he ultimately would have loved to have in work, there was no way that I would was comfortable with the current writing that, like, I wanted something different from work than he did. And through a lot of research and discussions and extrapolations, we came to the conclusion that, in fact, many people want similar things from work. They may not be expressed in the same way. And perhaps, you know, white-collar workers have greater events for the expression of it and for the manifestation of it. But one should not confuse the expression of what one values in work with what some of their underlying beliefs are. And the whole thesis in many ways was a bit of a, a tribute to kind of our background and frankly, a direct challenge to the current writing that somehow, you know, people with more education value things different in work than maybe those who did not have that same opportunity. I love that you mentioned you didn't even remember what you had for breakfast today. And it's we're recording this in the morning, which makes that all the funnier. And you remember this nearly 40 years later. Yes. I think that really speaks to the impact of the thesis experience. And I'm sure it, it influenced your career and your perspective as a CEO to jump ahead head a little bit is that is that an accurate assumption I think it is because I think I think it began my exploration of what do people value and work and when I was fortunate enough to kind of ascend into you know significant leadership roles 
I never lost sight of those learnings, of that exploration. And, you know, I've been very blessed, fortunate, lucky, et cetera, in, in my career. And I've had, you know, several hundred thousand people, you know, kind of working on my teams. And I've always tried to be very mindful that you're changing a company, but you're also impacting people's lives. And look, of course, it's not all one way or the other. And frankly, I try to always, you know, render that dilemma false because it's possible to, to do both. It's not always easy. There's always multiple trade-offs. There's also always multiple constituents. And you do the very best you could do to kind of optimize the overall situation. But within that context, surely the exploration, the research, the writing of the thesis at Penn State was formidable in the way in which I approached leadership for, you know, some very large companies. Excellent. And we'll dive into that in a little bit. Uh, I do have one more question about your time here at University Park. So you graduated not only with honors, but at the top of your class uh, in the Smeal College of Business. And you talked about, you know, coming from South Philly, the the mentality of, hey, I've got a chip on my shoulder, want to work extra hard. What specific strategies did you actually use to put yourself in that position that maybe students even today could apply to their own experiences as they pursue, you know, their 4.0 or whatever other goals that they might have? That's a great, it's a great question. Look, I would say there's probably, you know, two or three lessons learned. One is that nothing replaces hard work. You could always outwork anyone. So I did spend a lot of time studying and a lot of time preparing. Number two is try to find out what you're good at. For every single one of us, there are certain classes that we take and we say, boy, this is this is pretty straightforward. This is like pretty natural. And while you see like others struggling and conversely, there's other classes where like, you know, people are finding it quite easy and you're like, my gosh, this is pretty hard. How do you find that balance? On the one hand, you want to push yourself out of your comfort zone to take some of those classes which challenge you. But on the other hand, like also gravitate towards your strengths and what you're good at become great at, what you're great at become superlative at. And maybe what you're like just not particularly good at, just become okay at. So when you blend hard work to then following your passions or those things that in, in which you excel, and then through the process, I think you discover who you are and you discover what you want. And like I remember for me, like at times I would be studying on a Friday evening and everybody would be out. I would go meet them afterward. Well, for some reason, I like I felt like, you know, maybe I had a bit of an advantage because I was studying until, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And if, and and there was a bit of a strategy kind of that I deployed. Then I had like a terrific time, you know, for the rest of the weekend. So I would say the combination of hard work, following your passions and then deploying your own study habits that work uniquely for you. That is great advice. And I want to continue on with your story. So obviously you graduated from Penn State and then a few years later you went to Harvard Business School, which one of the top options for anyone who's pursuing an MBA. So how did you approach that experience and what would you tell a scholar who is planning to pursue graduate education at an Ivy League institution like Harvard? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's an excellent question. Like, first of all, I would say, depending on what graduate degree you're pursuing, I think often, not always, but often does make sense to maybe take a couple years out of college to work a bit, to help hone your craft, hone your interest be more reflective of who you are and what you want and what you want to pursue. And for me, I I actually graduated and then did not start Harvard Business School for four years. It was a great time for me to just really kind of get to know who I wanted that I did want to pursue in, in a career in business. In terms of like preparation, you know, for kind of a top graduate program, I think there are two pieces of advice I would give, which prima facie seem contradictory, but they're actually not. The first is 
do the research and understand what type of candidates is that school looking for. So understand what type of steps, what types of actions, what type of experiences would be helpful to you to become a strong candidate. The second recommendation or suggestion, which again, in some ways seems contradictory to the first one, but it's not, is to follow your unique path. Because where I've seen people are is actually on both sides. Where on the one hand, they may have not had the type of experience that they're going to put themselves to be a competitive candidate. But on the other hand, I've seen people try to, you know, erroneously kind of follow a certain playbook that they think that everybody who goes to, you know, Harvard Business School or Yale Law School or pick your favorite type of, you know, graduate school you want to go to, that they try to ha- they try to be like the prototypical applicant. The problem is there's going to be 10,000 other prototypical applicants. So what is your story? Like, what makes you you? Like, what makes the reader of the application say, wow, that's kind of an interesting story. Surely the grades have to be there and the credentials have to be there and the experience has to be there. But you tell your story all of your story, be all of who you are. And number one, you'll give yourself the greatest chance to be accepted into one of these programs. But number two is if you're not, you weren't not because you were trying to fake you were someone else. Be who you are, crush it, make the applicants and readers see it, and then let fate play out. I think that makes a lot of sense because eventually you're going to have to be yourself anyway, so why not do it right from the beginning? Exactly, because you think about it, like, you know, I, you know, we've all been in these situations where you do these, you know, mock reading of applications. And like, how do you pick between candidate one, two, three, four, five? They're all extraordinary. One of the ways you pick is based on the how interesting a certain application was. Just it was interesting. They did something, did something that was just kind of different from what others had done. Not in a way that like tries too hard to be different, but in a way that is authentic, but unique. And you could, and you want the kind of the reader of the application to say, you know what? I think, you know, she or he would be a wonderful member of our class. So you spend a few years in industry, go to B school at Harvard, then you come back to industry and a large part of your career early on was spent at IBM. So I was wondering if you could tell us some of the lessons that you learned either before or after B-School that would be helpful for scholars. And then on that same vein, what are you seeing now as a senior leader with early career professionals that would be helpful for our current scholars and young scholar alumni who are early in their careers as well to help them succeed in their early stages? As you said, the first, you know, 16 years or so of my career were with, you know, IBM. I've been at it now for 38 years or whatever, so a little less than half of of, uh, of my career. I would say the first point I'd make is the very decision to go to work for IBM. You know, when I graduated business school, everybody was going into like investment banking or consulting, and I was very fortunate to have offers in those areas. But for me, going to IBM felt right. It's what I wanted to do. It was aligned to what was important to me at the time, which was to build a set of skills and to get things done and to make an impact. And candidly, I just really liked the people there a lot. First thing I would say is when you make the choice where you're going to go to work, have it in a place that's aligned to what's important to you. Second thing I would say is when you are there, and what I tried to do was find those areas where you can make an impact. And that's not to say like your first one, two, three times you're going to find that place out. You're going to find certain jobs or certain roles that you're like pretty good at, but not differentiatingly good at. But then you start to find the areas that you are differentiatingly good at. And I tried to really kind of move my career into those areas you know, that for me personally kind of blend in strategy and operations and business development and the ability to kind of 
you know, lead groups. And then one success led to another success and you get yourself into a very nice virtuous cycle. And also being alert to the different types of roles in an organization and the alignment between that role and your skills. Because if you look at much of the research, particularly the more recent research, most people are not inherently excellent or awful. Where success often comes from is where there is the right fit. So try to find those roles where your skill set where those superpowers that you possess are particularly important for that type of job. Because then you will be extraordinary. Then you will be excellent. Doesn't mean you'll be excellent in another job. So guess what? The other job you shouldn't go to. Go to the job where you could be excellent. Find that fit. All the research shows the people who are most successful is the alignment of the requirements of the role and the skill set. And those very people in another job would not have done well. And those people who did well, frankly, put in the work to understand what types of roles they could exceed in. So Lou, this was not on the, the questions I had written out, but there's trying the expression of what got you there is not going to get you there. There's different variations of that. So how do you know you, you get really good at a role? How do you know when it's time to elevate yourself to the next one, knowing that it will take a different set of skills to succeed in those elevating levels of leadership? Yeah, I think one of the more toxic environments that one could be in is where one becomes to stagnate. And when you stop growing, when you stop learning, I think you find yourself starting to look at other types of opportunities. So I think for employers, it's important to continue to kind of challenge the team. And I think for the employees, you want to have a a mentality of continuous learning. Always be on the pursuit of looking to learn. When you're in one role and you're thinking about the next role, think about the very skills that it takes for that role. Observe the people. Who do you want to emulate? Who do you not want to emulate? Which attributes do you want to combine? Which which attributes of which people do you want to amalgamate into something that is uniquely you? And because, I don't know, one's deep quantitative skills and excellence in making predictions tied to machine learning could be excellent in job A. If you're going to another job in job B, where it's as much, I don't know, deductive as well as inductive reasoning, and then there's a leadership component upon that, do you have the dexterity of skills to continue to evolve? And I think kind of a central tenant thought on this whole topic is just a continuous reinvention of oneself. Are you constantly looking to be the best version of yourself? Not for your current role, but for your future role, and then in that role for the next role. And this has less to do with title or level or what have you. It has to do with kind of being true to yourself, being fulfilled, and continuing to reinvent yourself to what you want that ultimate version to be. So speaking of that ultimate version, you progressed up through the leadership at IBM, and then eventually you were tapped to be the CEO of not one, but two different large companies in different industries, and particularly at a young age for those. So... And, and even then, you didn't found those companies either. They were pre-existing companies. So it's a little bit of a different experience from somebody who maybe starts a, uh, a startup and, and founds it. Did you always know that you wanted to do that? Or how did you go about identifying that that's where you wanted to go? And get trying to go back to the last question, maybe about on how did you start setting yourself up to take on that CEO role? Yeah, and look, I mean, it's... it's um it's very thoughtful. I mean, in this year, I must say that I actually always did have a desire to lead significant organizations and to blend kind of a deep thoughtfulness with an effective leadership. And, you know, I've been able to accomplish that multiple times in my life and in my career. 
And I do think part of it is, you know, gravitating to those things you're good at. And I think this happens to be area where both from a knowledge perspective as well as a stylistic perspective, I've been able to thrive. But I'm constantly, you know, reevaluating myself and reevaluating ways to get better. In terms of the journey itself, look, first and foremost, I think you have to deliver results. Secondly, mentorship is very important. And mentorship is really your responsibility. Yes, there's certain companies which actually do it better, more systemically than others, but you need to think through who to reach out to. I remember, interestingly, I was here probably 25 years ago at Penn State receiving, I think it was called the Emerging Alumni Award. And I remember, you know, working at that meeting that I was at was a person named Ryan Newman. And Ryan, you know, liked what I said or enjoyed what he said or whatever the case may be. And he took it upon himself after that meeting to reach out to me, you know, in many ways, in a very polite way, asking if I could like help mentor him. And, you know, 25 years later, we're dear friends. We still have this kind of mentorship relationship and we work together in different uh, ways and so forth. So that was Ryan doing it. That to me is a perfect example of somebody who happens to be working at an event and they see somebody that says something that happens to resonate to somebody, that person took it amongst themselves to do it. So deliver results, move to the areas you're excellent at, you own your mentorship. And then the last point I'd make is that you also own your career. Again, there's certain companies who have wonderful management training programs and bosses who look out for you and so forth. Don't ever be confused. You own your career. And if things aren't going well, think through ways to make it better and work with those people you care about to help find yourself in the right situation. And I think, you know, frankly, through all of those techniques where to have you, I've been able to kind of embrace them. And, you know, I've had my own mentors who've been extraordinary to me and um, it's worked out well. Well, I'm glad you hit on that because mentorship is the overarching theme of this podcast. And I really like the take it and be active with it. I think that's great advice among all the other great nuggets that you just dropped there, Lou. Now, two part question for you about being a CEO. What did you enjoy about that type of role? And then what was something that really surprised you once you got into the role that you just never expected from having worked your way up? I would say the part that I enjoyed the most was the ability to impact a company and impact people. So a person can really make a big difference in changing the very course of a company. And I think what I was so appreciative of, but I don't think I had fully internalized until I was in those roles, is how much of an impact you could also have on people's lives. The people go home and part of their happiness will be based on how effective of a leader you were or were not. And that is an incredibly rewarding opportunity to impact a company, change the course of a company, but also impact lives along the way. And that impacting lives is probably the one that was a bit of a, you know, beautiful kind of exceeded my expectations. I guess if there's a a flip side to that, sometimes when it comes to some of the people aspects of it, you know, you wear that stuff very heavily. You know, because sometimes these are not always the easiest discussions or easiest decisions and so forth. So sometimes the people, decisions, discussions, et cetera, are more difficult than some of the really difficult, challenging business problems. It's no longer a case study in, in B-School. It's, it's yeah. real people in real lives. It's right? life. So one of the those companies that you had a real impact on was a company called Avaya. Did I pronounce that right? Yep. Um, and you led them through a sale and acquisition process. So how did you navigate that for both yourself as the leader, but also for your employees? Because that can be an exciting and a scary proposition for everybody involved. Yeah. So look, it was, it was a heck of a journey. I mean, Avaya was spun out from AT&T and Lucent, basically the phone company from AT&T Lucent. And I became 
CEO when the company had recently actually gone public. And it was a brand new company. It was a brand new public company. So it was this kind of blend of, you know, you had tens of thousands of people, but yet as a standalone company was new. And how do you build a team? How do you build a governance? How do you kind of establish the right motivation? How do you make the, you know, that fine distinction and strategies? You know, at the time there was, you know, the phone strategy, not to be technical here, but with something called TDM. And there was a big debate in terms of whether or not phone calls could be made over the internet, you know, voice over IP. And it's one of these things, it's obvious after it's obvious. Like now it's obvious, of course you know, you can make phone calls over the internet. But back then it was like this, like, you know, holy war in terms of, you know, voice is different. It's not a regular application. And I was a big believer had it having been in technology that in fact, you could have the voice application, quote unquote, um, over the internet. So the ability to kind of redirect the company to, you know, voice over IP was incredibly rewarding. And then we had, you know, great growth. The stock price went up, you know, quite high. And then, we had, you know, what you'll hear in the industry referred to as strategic options, you know, which was, do we make acquisitions? Do we go private, which we ultimately did? Do we combine with another large company? And I'm saying those decisions, there's two elements. One is the the bylaws per se prescribe certain optimization equations, like the shareholders have a duty in these following areas. And that's like clear what that is. And likewise, there's the things that are kind of less objective, but equally important, which is who are all the other stakeholders? You know, what's the right action for the customers? Importantly, what's the right action for the employees? How do you set something else up? So forth. And in that decision, you know, we decided that, you know, going private was the right decision. And if I contrast that, I had the opportunity to lead a, a large kind of clean tech company, it's a smart meter company called Census. And I led that company, which was private at the time. And we decided a few years later that the right next step for that company was to combine with a large strategic company, which was in the, you know, clean water area, a company called Xylem. So one situation going private was the right situation with census, combining with a strategic party was the right decision. And it's the sophistication or best possible job you could do at having a sophisticated view of looking at all the constituents, all the variables, and what is the right strategic decision for the company. So I imagine that was kind of stressful going through all of these these decisions. And you shared in advance that you actually ended up stepping away from your career for a little bit to focus on your health. So can you tell us about that experience and how you realized that that was something that you needed to do? Yeah, again, it's one of these decisions where I wish I had the kind of the thoughtfulness or the objectivity to make decision to make the decision versus the decision being made for me. So look, I mean, long story short, I was, you know, in the prime of my career, I was 43 years old. I was leading a Fortune 500 company. I was getting ready to give a big keynote speech for 20,000 people. I was feeling a little under the weather. I was given certain medications to kind of get me to feel better. And without going into all the specifics, basically one of the medications I had an allergic basically reaction to and it essentially attacked my body. And it induced something called metalloprotease and a compromised fibroblast. And long story short, um, two weeks later, found myself no longer able to walk. I'll never forget this. We were with uh, my wife and I and our two kids who were young at the time. We were in Disney World and it was pouring raining and I could not get up. And we did the best to try to, you know, have the kids think it was some type of game we were playing. It isn't a fun to get, you know, soaked and so forth. But in fact, you know, my body was just giving out on me. You know, I lost 35 pounds. I lost tremendous amount of muscle mass. And essentially for two years, I could not walk. 
And when that happens to you, life gets jolted into its proper perspective. Um, I had no choice but to kind of take care of my health. And after much exploration in the medical field, we found that the answer, thank goodness, was not, it was not a disease. It was an effect that was happening to my body, but that would fix itself once the cells reset themselves. And that's exactly what happened. The cells kind of reset themselves. I began to gradually feel better. And then I kind of you know, recovered 100%. And just to kind of go into that theme. And then like when I got better, my wife was diagnosed with an advanced stage of cancer. Thank God, after a couple of years of treatments, she fully recovered. So it's kind of interesting. And, and I think this hopefully will be helpful to, to some of the student listeners, which is always try to do your best to put things in perspective. As my wife and I now look back at those two incidences, pretty much back to back, we feel very fortunate in some crazy way that they happened because it accelerated our life perspectives by probably 15 years. And it allowed us to make choices in life with the benefit of that, that we probably otherwise would not have made. And so while they were, you know, horrible, you know, three, four, five years, and, you know, our kids kind of went through it during those tough times, it gave us a perspective that we otherwise would not have had. So the people I admire are the people who are able to kind of jolt themselves into a life perspective without having to be in a wheelchair, without having to have had cancer, but that they have just a wherewithal to have done it. And yes, it was, an, it was an adjustment for me from, you know, being, you know, on the cover of magazines and speaking at the World Economic Forum and, you know, young, one of the youngest CEOs of a Fortune 500 company to then no longer able to walk, to then, you know, working with, with my family and my wife's situation. But in the end, I wouldn't trade it for anything because it allowed us to have the perspective we have today and the family that we have today. Well, I'm glad that you both are fully recovered and and Thank able you. to join us at University Park this weekend to celebrate your accomplishments as we're recording this. And more importantly, glad that you were able to pull perspective from that and share that with our scholars. So, you know, listening, that email, sometimes it can wait till the next day, right? You know, that homework assignment, you know, you got to get it done, but take a breather, enjoy, smell the roses, right? It's true. But, you know, look, I got to tell you, though, it's, it's so true and it's so easy to give that perspective to others. And then when it's you, sometimes it's just more difficult. So my kind of counsel to the people listening would be find people in your lives who, if you cannot always put things in the right perspective, that they will help you do that. You need people who could help you kind of with that. And by the way, like there's trade-offs because some of these other roles and some of these other accolades are for, you got to work darn hard for. So again, how do you kind of carve out that path in life where you render that dilemma false? And am I going to work hard and succeed? Or am I going to put things in perspective and be happy? That's a false dilemma. Carve out for you, your life uniquely, how you render that dilemma false. How you create an equation that's uniquely you to get the best of what you want out of life. I think that is really good to look at that way. Sometimes these false dichotomies that we we box ourselves into. Now, you rebounded, got well again. Your wife rebounded, got well again. And it's pretty common for folks who are either currently or have been CEOs and other roles in the C-suite, like the chief legal officer, the chief financial officer, the COO, to serve on boards of other companies and nonprofits. So can you tell us a little bit about what that type of work is like? And more importantly, for those who get the opportunity to do something like that, how do you go about choosing to say yes or no to those opportunities? Great question. And I think 
in, in, in the answer to the last part of your question, I do think you have to be very deliberate with your decisions because like once you say yes to something, like you really have to do it, right? It's not like, you know, yeah, I'm going to do it and like, you know, it'll feel good the first day and like, you know, someone wrote a press release. Like you actually have to do it then. So I would be very deliberate about it. All your passions, like what do you care about? What do you care about? I've been on you know, boards of, of an orphanage for a decade, a biomedical research nonprofit, which is looking at which genes cause which diseases and what type of cellular intervention could change the very course of the disease. I've been on trustee boards for theater companies. I care about every one of those, whether it's children, whether it's science and healthcare. And I must admit, as we went through our own situation, we became deeply engaged in, in, in the whole era of healthcare, or whether it's the arts. Follow your passions. And if you're going to commit to something, do it right. Do not be one of these nonprofit board members who shows up, you know, at every other meeting. If you're going to do it, engage and do it. And it's incredibly fulfilling when you do. Well, as a volunteer manager in my day job, I appreciate that advice and I would wholeheartedly echo that, Lou. But this is kind of my side hustle in my job is running this podcast. And you as a CEO um, and executive have even found your own side hustle, if you will. Can you talk about how you got into some music even though your primary experience was in consumer brands and telecommunications. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I have always loved music, like really loved music, but loved it from a consumer perspective. I consume music. Actually, both my kids are, are into music. My daughter's released a few songs, actually. But as I progressed in my career, you know, as a CEO and led large companies and so forth, you find yourself kind of continue to intersect with different ecosystems and group and so forth. And I became involved in, you know, with several people in the theater world and understanding that world and so forth. And then it's very interesting, Sean, because it goes back to your earlier question. It was the intersection of a couple of my nonprofit passions that kind of catalyzed my work in this area. So when I was kind of the chair of an orphanage and we were having a gala for the orphanage, we brought in different, you know, stars from Broadway to perform. One of those stars is a person who starred in Hamilton for five years, a woman named Mandy Gonzalez. And we began to work together and it was her dream to put together an album. And she has a fabulous voice. She's accomplished. She, you know, uh, originated the role of Nina Rosario in In the Heights, then played Angelica Schuyler for five years in Hamilton. She's dear friends with Lin-Manuel Miranda. Anyway, we worked together and I, you know, proudly now get the credit as the executive producer of her album, which is called Fearless. And the funny, not the funny thing, but the great story is like the day it was released, albeit a moment in time, it was number 13 on the iTunes charts between Ed Sheeran and Beyonce. And fortunately, my daughter screenshotted it. It didn't last long there, but for that moment in time, it was there. And this woman, Mandy, has an extraordinary voice. So I've, whether it's kind of supporting shows per se or executive producing a world-class talents album, um, yes, side hustle, passion, call you one. You have to find out my early point, who you are and ensure some of your life's time is carved out for that. This is an audio only podcast, but if you could see Lou right now, he is just glowing talking about this. So definitely a, a cool uh, accomplishment that, you, exactly. that you've added to your impressive resume already. And speaking of talent, it's not a surprise at all. And you referenced this early in our conversation. As a scholar alum, you've been asked for your expert opinion, both as an advisor right now for Goldman Sachs, but also numerous publications, magazines, and conferences like the World Economic Forum. How do you approach those opportunities, whether it's an in interview for, say, the Wall Street Journal or something like that, or speaking to, you said, 20,000 people as a keynote? I would say three things. Number one is, and it goes, goes back to one of the kind of central themes that we've spoken about here, which is you put the work in. 
you understand who's going to be at the conference, what's happening, what's of interest, what's happening economically in the world, what's happening geopolitically in the world. You know, thinking about today's environment with what's happening with on the economy, with interest rates, with consumer buy-in in the geopolitical world, with Ukraine, with China. So when you're speaking at some of these large forums that have a global audience, you want to make sure that you're speaking at a level that is of relevancy, that is of interest to the people, whether it's a business conference or a governmental event or whether it's a kind of nonprofit. You want to understand who the audience is and substantively craft the narrative on areas that they actually care about. Number two is you want to speak in an engaging style. One of the reasons why ChatGPT right now has become so alluring to so many people is because of its mastery of language. And people in an audience, when they hear somebody speak, both how people speak and the phraseology that they use connotes a certain competency in a specific area. So I think in addition to kind of the prep, the stylistic engagement matters a lot. You want to keep somebody's interest. And number three for keynotes, like no one to be quiet. Like no one, to, no one to stop talking. I mean, how many, I guess the people on the, you know, listen to the podcast, like how many speeches were you ever part of that when they ended, you said, my gosh, I wish that just went a little longer. Like zero, like zero, zero. Okay. Maybe one, probably not though. So like, you know, no one to shut up. And also never ever start a speech by saying, I'm going to keep my remarks short because inevitably that's a sign that it's not going to be short. Exactly, exactly. I mean, there's little tips, right? Like, you know, if it is a little bit on the longer side, make sure you help people like, and I just have, you know, two more quick points left. So they know, okay, my gosh, at least there's only kind of two points left, you know. I I, I prefer structure, like, you know, we're going to talk about three major things. Tell people how long it's going to be. But but, but mostly have content they actually care about, stylistically engage them, and they'll want to be quiet. Well, speaking of that structure... We're going to move into the last part of our conversation. This is the reflective questions. So, Lou, what kinds of questions about corporate management and your experiences as a senior leader did I not think to ask or putting it another way? What kind of questions do you get from student mentees or business journalists that I could have asked you, but I didn't think to? Right now, one of the questions that's frankly apropos and on many people's minds is the whole discussion of, of artificial intelligence and what that's what's going to happen with kind of roles and so forth. And first of all, AI is not taking over. There's no kind of insatiable being out there that's going to like, you know, kind of take over this world and so forth. I think there's going to be certain jobs which are going to be augmented. I think the knowledge level overall in the world increases. Um, I think we have to embrace the technology, put the right governance around the right structure to it. So one of the questions I've recently gotten was around, you know, what types of jobs are most at risk and so forth. And, you know, general summarizing jobs. Yeah, like some of them, you know, may be challenged because some of these large language models are pretty extraordinary. But guess what? There's always been technology innovations and so forth. So you have to just continue back to one of our early points, continue to reinvent your skill set. Another question I got, I get frequently is, you know, have you seen the set of skills evolve over the last, you know, 35 to 40 years in terms of what it takes to be successful? And I would say not really, but with one caveat. The not really is that, you know, substantive depth matters, leadership matters, the ability to kind of bring together teams matter. All those things have, have been consistent, you know, over decades and will continue to be that case forever. I would say this, this first point, though, substantive depth, depth, particularly in areas like technology companies, has become increasingly important. 
So if you look at, you know, 25 years ago, oftentimes technology companies were run by quote unquote business people. Now you're seeing many of those technology companies with leaders who also have, frankly, some pretty good technical chops. I think for your students and so forth, like what's most important is to work your tail off, find the areas that are of passion to you and continue to kind of search out, seek that mentorship and own your career. And I would have said the same thing 35 years ago. Now, what would you say, besides maybe charting an album between Beyonce and Ed Sheeran, what is your biggest success to date? Oh, that's easy. Uh, my family. It sounds so corny, but it's so true. Like, it's everything. It's, um, it's everything. I think that's a great answer, and I think a lot of our guests have said similar sentiments as well. I mean, look, I, you know, and Penn State brings a lot of that about. I mean, I went to college here, but in many ways, through me, so did my parents. I'm one of the first philanthropic endeavors that our family, you know, launched was uh, a, a scholarship for my dad, Marty D'Ambrosio Scholarship, which, you know, we probably have, I don't know, 50 plus recipients, you know, who've received it over the years. So his legacy endures, even though he never went there, but, you know, he never had the opportunity, you know, he never went to high school, but so what? I went there and so did he and so did my mom. Uh, my mom is actually with me this weekend. My, my dad unfortunately passed away. And, you know, my wife and our two kids, that's, that's my greatest, that's life. Recently, a younger colleague who's starting to raise, you know, starting to have children asked me, you know, oh, yeah, here, you know, starting a family changes your life or whatever. It's not really. It becomes life. It is life. So for me, my greatest accomplishment is the relationship to myself, my wife, Kim, daughter, Alexis, son, Christopher, that bond. We've gotten that part of it right. That's awesome. I think that's all you can really hope for in life. But on the flip side, Lou, what would you say is your biggest transformational learning moment or failure and what you took from that experience? That's an excellent question. Um, I would say I wish that it's a little what we talked about earlier, that I was jolted into a life perspective, life reality because of an illness. Like, I think I tried to keep a really good prioritization on life before that, but I, I probably w I do wish I, I could have done a better job in certain areas. I would say that the sooner one could internalize too what which really of motivation to them, the better. I've learned over the years how much of a motivation learning is for me. And like, I think I always realized that, but maybe if I internalized that earlier, I would have potentially been better at different things I've done. But I've always tried to be open-minded in terms of learning. Yeah, so those are some things. So Lou, you mentioned a few folks already, but are there any professors or friends from your scholar days that you'd like to give a shout out to? Oh, sure. Like so, like a couple of my, you know, dear buddies, you know, Steve Morielli and his wife, Gina Morielli, are dear friends. I was, you know, Steve's best man in his wedding and, and Gina and we're all have stayed super, super close. Joe Kernan, my collaborator on my thesis. Still today, we talk about the thesis. It's interesting, right? Because we talk about the thesis both in terms of like how relevant it was and how relevant it is. And then maybe if I'm being fair, how potentially idealistic it was in certain areas as well. But that's okay. That's okay. Like we can reflect, you know, it's like a, you know, 21 year old, you know, where may have been starry eyed, but yet there were seeds of it, which kind of transcended time. And uh, so Joe Kernan, Ryan Newman, obviously is younger than me, but he's still a dear friend. Teachers, Vicki Apt left a profound mark on me. Um, she's actually a social psychologist, but really kind of was instrumental in thinking about people's behavior within groups and how the groups act and the individual behavior within the group. And I, I you know, some of the learnings of that all the way through you know, leading large companies I take with me. Denny Joy at the business school. The honor of walking down with Denny when, you know, when we did the graduation. And, you know, he's one of the folks who introduced me when I was very blessed to give the, um, the graduation speech when we graduated. So, yeah, great memories. I, I keep those people, you know, it, some of them like literally I still keep with all the time. Then some of them for sure in my mind. 
Now, you've mentioned a lot of great pieces of advice that definitely tie to our mission statement, whether it's academic excellence and your thesis and grad school, building global perspective. You talked about, especially with kind of the, the big picture and speaking and understanding the environments around you and creating opportunities for leadership and civic engagement. Obviously, you've had a lot of leadership roles and dropped some great nuggets of knowledge around leading teams and large organizations. But is there a final piece of advice that you want to leave our scholars with today? Be who you are. Embrace who you are. Don't worry about what other people think. You answer to nobody but yourself. You worry about what you want to do. And if, you know, your 10 best friends that you're graduating with are going to company X, but in your gut, you'd rather go to company Y, you go to company Y. Do not follow her mentality. Do what's right for you. And by the way, like, if in fact you want to go to the same place that all your 10 friends are going to, go to that same place. Like, don't not do it because they're going there, but just follow your dreams. You know who you are. Everybody has their own unique equation. Everybody has their own calculus and what matters to them. Don't worry about what others think. You go what works for you. If making a lot of money works for you and that's what you care about. Don't worry about some people perceiving it as, you know, vanity or what have you. If doing something for social good matters to you, don't worry about other people saying, you know, well, how much money are you making? If you want to wear a tie every day, and that's what the company says, if you want to wear shorts every day, if you want to wear flip-flops every day, you do what works for you. And I'm telling you, what I've seen is people who try to do what either they think somebody else wants them to do, or what their parents want them to do, or what their friends think they should do, or what they think sounds good, all that stuff's baloney. You follow your dreams, you be all that you could be, and start with that immediately, and you'll look back 40 years later, 50 years later, and say, thank goodness, I started my life early, I started my career early in being true to whom I am. Couldn't have said it any better if I tried. So if a scholar wanted to reach out to you and kind of like you said, Ryan Newman walked up to you and- and LinkedIn is the best way. LinkedIn? Yeah, just have them reach out to me on LinkedIn. Excellent. I I, I will kind of, you know, get right back to them and, uh, you know, know, based on where they're located, you know, work with you and Sean and the team will, you know. And finally, our last question, as we always do here on Following the Gong, if you were a flavor of Berkey Creamery ice cream, Lou, which would you be? And most importantly, as a scholar alum, why would you be that flavor? Hmm. I think I'd have to go with, um, I'm not even sure if they still have it any longer. It was like called like, I think it was like WPSU Coffee Break. That's it. That's that the name. There? Yep. Oh yeah, that's a staple. I think I have to do that because like it's it, for two reasons. One is I love espresso. So even though it's not saying like, you know, espresso break, like let's just substitute coffee for espresso, but let's go with coffee break just because it's something that I have to constantly tell myself that it's okay sometimes to take a break. It's okay sometimes to step back. I think so if I eat ice cream, whether it's, you know, it'll be like, it'll be like another like kind of Pavlovian signal that I need to take a break. And I would say to our scholars, um, next time you're having something at the creamery, try coffee break and spend maybe 10 seconds, 15 seconds, just reflecting on what really is important to you in life. Lou, that was a absolutely stellar answer to why you would be a specific flavor. I think a lot of times folks angle on the coffee. I love that you angled on the break in the name. Lou D'Ambrosio. Espresso too, don't forget. Oh, yes. I'm just saying. Yes. Yes. As somebody who consumes way too much coffee, I appreciate all of it. (laughs) Lou D'Ambrosio, you have been the CEO of too many companies to name right here, but you can read it in the notes in your podcast app. Thank you so much for joining us here live in person for following the gone. I enjoyed our conversation and I hope you two listening did as well. Thank you, Sean. It's really, really, really a delight to be here.
Thank you, scholars, for listening and learning with us today. We hope you will take something with you that will contribute to how you shape the world. This show proudly supports the Schreier Honors College Emergency Fund, benefiting scholars experiencing unexpected financial hardship. You can make a difference at raise.psu.edu forward slash Schreier. Please be sure to hit the relevant subscribe, like, or follow button on whichever platform you are engaging with us on today. You can follow the college on Instagram and LinkedIn to stay up to date on news, events, and deadlines. If you have questions about the show or are a Scholar alum who'd like to join us as a guest here on Following the Gone, please connect with me at scholaralumni at psu.edu. Until next time, please stay well, and we are...